be talking about family, we're going to be talking about what it means to belong, and as I think all of us already know, families are complicated, right? Um, have you ever heard this saying before, uh, that families are like fudge, mostly sweet with a couple of nuts? <laughs> I usually have a whole bunch of family here, and I was going to like make them raise their hand if they thought they were one of the nuts, so um, I'm going to raise my hand, and Corinne, who's not here this morning, would have to raise hers too. Um, <laughs> But she's not here, so I'm going to be there. I'm going to be by myself. Um, so what's interesting about today is um, that this little chocolate fudge thing is actually going to be true of today's text. But I think the surprise is going to be who the nut of the family is. Right? This is what's going to surprise us. So let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are read, as your word is proclaimed, that we would hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Amen. So there's this kind of like, you know, contemporary battle over the definition of family. Um, as families can look quite a bit different today than this old, this is the old dictionary definition right here. The dictionary definition still says a group consisting of parents and children living together in the same household. Families look a lot different than that definition today. Um, families are complicated, they're messy, they're good, but they're rarely ever perfect. And so the Urban Dictionary actually adds this, that I think is pretty cool. The Urban Dictionary adds that real family is a bond that cannot be broken by any means, right? That's an important tradition. And so maybe someone's heard this quote. Once in a while, like Mark Twain quotes are great. Um, this one's really good, and I can totally relate to this one, and it's being recorded, and my dad will probably listen to this. So here's for you, Dad. Um, Mark Twain said this. He goes, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, so the interesting thing is that not only we're going to see Jesus is going to be at odds with the religious establishment of his day, which is something that we should be right now really fairly accustomed to, um, but the unique thing is that he's also going to be at odds with his own family, particularly his mother um, and his brothers. And so we're going to witness Jesus redefine the notion of family. And so as we listen to the story from Mark, see if you can identify the family issues within Jesus' family in the story. Um, and also know in your mind, who does Jesus say are the real members of his family, right? So let's just shoot, shoot for those two things and see if you can find them when you hear this. Mark 3, 20-35. Then he went home, Jesus, and the crowd came together so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent 
to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, they're asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. This, there's a couple of tough things in here that would be fun to, to talk about. Um, so I read this poem, Robert Frost, 1905, wrote this poem called The Death of the Hired Man. And in it, it deals with this issue of family, and it deals with this issue of what it means to belong. And so the poem is this conversation between a farmer named Warren and his wife named Mary, and the conversation that the two are having is about a former employee named Silas. Now this guy was a guy who had been with this family for probably decades helping this farmer. One day, right in the middle of the harvest, this guy Silas just takes off, chasing some more money, takes another job somewhere else, and leaves this farmer Warren at a really, really bad time. Years later, his wife Mary runs into this guy Silas while she's in town. He's now old and miserable, and he's in such bad shape that she barely recognizes this guy when she sees him. She brought him back to the farm in order to persuade her husband to help him. Warren is still bitter, he needs more convincing, uh, because this guy left him at a, a really tough time. And so Mary's more compassionate, she considers this guy part of her family. Now Warren wants Silas to go home to his real brother. He has a real brother that lives about 13 miles away, and is this really successful banker. He has plenty of money, so he's wondering, why has this guy come to his house when his brother is so close? Now Frost actually doesn't say why Silas refused to go home, but he hints at the fact that he actually considered Warren and Mary to be his true family. He considered this place to be his true home. And so Frost writes this. He says, Warren, she said, he's come home to die. You needn't be afraid that he'll leave you this time. Home, he mocked Jim. Yes, what else but home? It all depends on what you mean by home. Home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And so by the end of the poem, she's actually convinced her husband to take this guy back, but he was too late. He walks into the other room to check on him, and he's already died. And I love this definition. Robert Frost says, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. So home is supposed to be this place of acceptance, this place of belonging. It's the one place that, like, it has to take us back no matter what, no matter who we are or what we've done, because by definition, this is what family is supposed to do. It's what family does. It gives us pl a place to belong, even when that place may be at times undeserved. And it's like, when I read this story today, I thought, man, too bad that Jesus' mother and brothers hadn't read Robert Frost, you know? Jesus comes back home. He's been away for a little while. He now returns. Most likely, we're talking about Peter's home in Capernaum where the ministry had begun. And when he arrives, there's such a crowd that he literally, it says, like he can't even lift his arms up to eat. There's that many people around him. So you've got to think right away there's going to be this compare and contrast between this crowd and Jesus' family. And so there's, we also know there's already a plot to take Jesus out that's in play, right? People are divided about it, and they're taking up sides. And the surprising thing about this story is that Jesus' family, they take a side. But the surprising thing is they don't take the side that we expect family to take. 
His family hears that Jesus is back in town and goes not to welcome him. Do you remember the word? Restrain him. Not welcome him. Restrain him. Right? They're actually trying to stop him, believing that Jesus has completely lost his mind. And so the forces of opposition to Jesus surprisingly come from within. It's a pretty unique story in the Gospels. They come from those closest to him. And then, of course, from these scribes who are these religious leaders that are from Jerusalem that have kind of come to check up on him. So they, these are the two charges that they kind of levy against him, right? His family thinks that he's the nut in the bunch. Like, this is the crazy part of the scripture. And then the religious establishment, they think he's just, he's gone completely crazy. And that's definitely not the right thing. Um, those, this is what the point is, this is the point of what I was just trying to say, that those who should be his biggest advocates are the ones that are his biggest adversaries. Those that should be on his side are the ones that are actually working against him. And so it's interesting that the religious establishment, this is fascinating to me, right? They actually don't accuse him of being a fake. They know better than that. They've actually witnessed the miracles firsthand. They know he possesses some real power. They've seen things that they've never seen before. The problem is in the fact, where do they attribute this power as coming from? They attribute his power as coming not from God, but this weird word, Beelzebul. You've heard, have anyone heard that word before? There's a couple of variations of the word. And so the exact meaning of that word is like today is almost impossible to recover. Um, it would have been really fun to do it. I actually traced it a little bit. We would have been talking about dung heaps and Lord of the Flies. That was how we would have done it. Um, which would have been really fun, but it would have gotten us off, like way off track. Um, so here's what we know about what the meaning, what the overall meaning of that is actually really simple. It's this reference to the ruler of the dynasties of these, these evil dynasties. So I pick three. There's some of my favorites. The Emperor, Lord Voldemort. What's the other guy's name? Sauron? Is that right? From The Hobbit? Um, those are three. So if you, get, if you get this, you get the idea of what's going on with Jesus, right? They're associating Jesus' miracles and they're attributing them to the and so it's not just this casual misunderstanding. What the scripture is saying is that it's this malicious misrepresentation of the truth. And so here's, here's another guy we'll get to in a second. He's kind of scary. Um, but Jesus is actually going to counter their argument with some strength and power and logic. And he does it by describing this mini parable he tells about binding and robbing a very strong man. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to pick the strongest man in the world. Here he is, Eddie Hall. Right? This, this guy won the 2017 World Strongest Man competition. Imagine the thought of trying to rob that guy's house while he was at home. <laughs> Anybody? Yeah, no thank you. Like, if all of us tried to do it together, I still think we would be in trouble. Alright, here he is by the numbers. Deadlift, 1,102 pounds. <laughs> World record. He has a 476 pound strict press above his head. Okay? Uh, that's two of me. <laughs> Um, his bench press is 660 pounds. Those strong guys in the NFL combine, they're doing 225, just to put it in perspective. Um, he squats over 800 pounds. Like, who wants to go rob that guy's house while he's at home? Like, no thank you. Like, anyone still want to try to subdue this guy? This is the image that we should have in our mind. Jesus says he's talking about binding the strong man, right? Who wants to go try to bind that guy? Like, not me. Not me and anyone else I know with me, even. You're going to try to subdue this guy. You better have an army or some seriously like heavy artillery. 
Um, because his nickname is the Beast, so like when he flexes, he's got the Beast <laughs> on the inside of his biceps, which is just awesome. I thought about that picture, but he just looks scarier here because of his face. Um, anyway, in order to bind this guy, right, the strongman, which in in the scripture we're looking at, this is a reference to Satan. If you're going to bind the strongman, a reference to Satan, Jesus is going to have to first use his smarts and then his strength, right? So he begins with logic when he talks in this parable. This parable is a kind of a riddle, right? And it basically is saying that if his life's work, if his entire purpose, his entire mission is opposed to Satan, if his whole work is opposed to Satan, how could he, how could he be empowered by it? He's just using simple logic back in the story, right? And if he's empowered by him, then why would he be working against his own employer? This is what he's saying. Like, this doesn't, he's, he's saying to the scribe, he's like, your argument makes absolutely no sense Whatsoever, He just points out that the logic of the scribes is, is, is nonsense. That a house or kingdom divided against itself is never able to stand, right? And then the second part of the parable is after the logic kind of brings down the hammer. He's basically like, look, if you're going to go steal this guy's property, you better first tie him up or you're in trouble. Um, to that endeavor, I would say good luck. But fortunately, um, Jesus is stronger than the strongest man in the world. That's what he's saying. And so for centuries, we might remember some of our Old Testament stuff, um, that the prophets had always talked about God plundering the house of the strong man and freeing the captives. We might remember that kind of language, the freeing the captives is all over uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, and in, in some of the New Testament too. But who's strong enough to do that? It's kind of the question we're supposed to be asking. And then John the Baptist comes along, this New Testament prophet, and he says, well, the one who's coming behind me, that one's much more powerful than I am. And the one he's speaking of is, of course, Jesus. And so this is, to me, the most fascinating thing about this story is how Jesus binds the strong man. He binds Satan and frees the captives with forgiveness. Forgiveness. The people are held captive by sin. Jesus frees the captive by offering forgiveness. This is not what I expected, personally. Like, when I think about this, this is not what I would have expected. How to bind a strong man? Offer forgiveness. <laughs> this is the thing that binds Satan. Forgiveness is not what I expected at all. It probably isn't what you expected. Um, it's this forgiveness that we, the captives, are freed from the dominion of the strong man. It's this forgiveness offered by Jesus that is offered to everyone who wants it. It's never withheld, but rather it's always graciously and freely given. And then Jesus sneaks in one of the most troubling things that you will find anywhere out of his lips, right? And it is, I want to deal with it pretty quickly um, and not just kind of gloss over it because if not understood properly, I've heard this do some damage before, really being misunderstood. It's one of the more disturbing statements that he makes in the gospel. He says, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not have this forgiveness that he's talking about. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is not going to have it because they're guilty of this eternal sin. And you kind of ask yourself, what is this eternal sin that Jesus is talking about? I've heard a bunch of stuff taught on this. One of them, when I was a kid, I remember distinctly being told that this sin was the sin of committing the act of committing suicide. And even as a kid, it didn't make, that didn't make any sense to me. And then I had a friend commit suicide in college. I'm like, this makes no sense. And you go back and you look at this passage and you say... Where does that answer come from in context of this passage? And the answer to that question is, it's not there. Like, it is 
it's not even that answer is not even close. And I don't know what answers you've heard um, that people have given on this, but the passage actually makes the answer to that question really clear. It's not that complicated, so it surprises me that it's this misunderstood. The eternal sin is really specific. It's this misguided idea that Jesus is motivated by and serving the cause of evil rather than good. This is the context of the passage, right? The person who believes that, Jesus seems to be saying, is lost. They're just, they're so lost, they're not even able to distinguish good from evil or light from darkness uh, or right from wrong. And so like the prophet Isaiah said, this is something similar, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. People are so, they're so confused, they can't even tell the difference between these two things. And then I was like, when I, when I looked at this, I was asking myself, like, who can make this drastic a mistake? Like, who looks at good and sees it as evil? Like, who are those people? Like, I don't know. I really, I'm not sure I know who they are. And, I, and then I had this, like, aha moment, right? I looked back at the scripture, and I'm like, this is exactly what the scribes did. Exactly what they do. And this is what Jesus is saying to them. It's like, they witness his power, these miracles that Jesus has performed. And what do they say? They say, this guy's possessed by demons. That's that mistake, right? That Jesus gives them this pretty stern warning because of it. And I was like, man, who could look at Jesus bringing peace, healing the sick, offering forgiveness to the sinner, offering salvation to the world, and mistake it for the work of evil? The scribes, right there in front of them, are the ones talking to him. They do that exact thing, and Jesus gives them this warning. And then I thought it would be important to hear this one truth, but to balance it with another truth. So when I go through scripture, and you, someone can correct me if I'm wrong about this, here's another biblical truth, that there's not one record in scripture of anyone asking God for forgiveness where God withholds forgiveness. Find one. Find one where someone is in need or asking forgiveness and where forgiveness is withheld from that person. I, I don't know what it is. And so then, at the end of this story, Jesus' mothers and brothers, they started off at the beginning. They return to center stage for kind of the finish. Someone tells Jesus he's busy, the crowds are there, that his family's making a scene in the front yard, and that they're asking for him. And it's ironic, right? Because why is his family outside in the front yard? Where's your family? If there's a crowd, and there's your family, isn't your family normally the one on the inside? Alas. And the crowds are the one on the outside of the house? So right here we've got this gospel <coughs> reversal. We see this all the time in the scriptures, right? That there's some kind of reversal going on right here. It's this huge hint that outsiders have become insiders. And that insiders have become the outsiders. And so Jesus then does the kind of astonishing thing. He redefines his family not as a group consisting of parents and children living together in a household. But Jesus redefines family as those who do the will of God. Jesus' family has made their judgment. They think he's crazy. And it's this really sad moment in Mark that Jesus isn't even at home in his own family. Right? It's really a low point in Mark's gospel. And it's like, this could be, for some people, a really painful reminder for some who feel like they can relate to this. Not to be, or feel at home within your own family. And so home, remember, Robert Frost said, which I love this definition, is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Jesus' family, they don't take him in, 
right? They don't stand by him, they don't support him, they don't encourage him. They're the outsiders that are attempting to derail him from his purpose and mission in this story. And so Jesus redefines his family as those who do the will of God. And as shocking as this might be to hear, it actually should be some pretty good news. Like, what this is saying is that we have an opportunity, uh, an invitation, really, to join Jesus' family, to find a true home, to find a place of acceptance, a place of belonging. Um, and so when I think about this, I'm like, has anyone in here ever struggled to find God's will? Like, like has that ever been difficult for anyone, or is that really easy? You have a really easy time for that. Like, I'm thinking of my mind, but you're that guy. And I'm like, does God really want me to eat this Twinkie? You know, is this really the will of God that I eat? Of course not. You know, God doesn't ever want you to eat a Twinkie. Anyway, <laughs> but am I going to eat it anyway? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, um, but people ask this question all the time. People struggle with this all the time. I, I talk to countless people have this question all the time. They want to sit down and they want to talk about it. I'm just trying to figure out God's will for my life. Like, serious, I'm just kidding about the Twinkie thing because that's where my mind goes. But, like, should I take this job? Um, should I be with this person? Should Right? And they have all these questions of behavior. Should I do this or that? And it's like, I started thinking about, you know, some people, like, raise your hand if you're a checklist person. Like, we have a lot of, yeah, and there's a lot of checklist people, right, that really like it clear and easy. You can check the box when you're done, and you got that covered. Um, Mark, it, Mark just doesn't offer checklists on the answer to this question. But that's, that's the bad news. The good news is, Mark does offer two ideas. Basically saying, like, if you want to do the will of God, there's two things that, that Mark suggests in this story. And here they are. And I like them because they're just they're not terribly complicated. They're really simple. Stick around and follow Jesus, right? Stick around and follow Jesus. And so Jesus is here in this story inviting us to come along for the journey, to join with him. It's this invitation moment where the crowds are the ones that actually listen. Um, this is where Mark should really surprise us. The crowds are the one. They're usually in Scripture. The crowd's almost always a negative example. Almost always. But this time, they're the ones that get it right. They're the ones that are gathered around Jesus. They're listening. They're intently listening. They're following. They're doing exactly what Jesus said. Um, and his own family, they're the ones that are on the outside looking in. Right? They're not sticking around, sticking by him. And that just made me think, like, it's really, really easy to drift away from Jesus in church. Like, I guarantee you, at some time or another, we've all been there and understand this, you know? We see it all the time. Like, life's so short. We've got a lot of things going on, so much to do. Uh, to Jesus, might say something like this to, to people like us, right? There's, like, nothing in life that's more important than sticking by me. That's what this story is really about, this invitation to follow him into this kind of unfolding of the good news of the kingdom of God among us. And so discipleship, of course, it depends on being in Jesus' presence gathered around him like this crowd sitting at his feet, listening and following. And so finally for those concerned, which was me, I admit it, I heard, you know, Jesus' harsh statement to his mother and his brothers and I'm like, oh boy, this is, this is one of the harsher things, things he says. Um, for those concerned about that statement, there's two kind of fun things to think about before we go. By the time that this Gospel of Mark was written, Jesus' uh, Jesus's mother Mary has already held an extremely regard by the early church. What does that mean? It means that she didn't stay where she was. That's what that means. Because if she had, 
she would not be have been held in high regard by the early church, for sure. Second, by the time Mark's gospel was actually written down, guess who the leader of the church in Jerusalem was? Anybody? James, Jesus' brother. Right? Jesus' brother who's here trying to restrain him. Jesus' brother is the leader of the church of Jerusalem after Jesus' death. Right? So hopefully that warms the heart just a little bit. We don't go out thinking that Jesus is a stranger and family forever. Um, they did end up sticking around. They did end up following. Even Jesus' family, who gets, gets it pretty good in this story, eventually, right, even Jesus' family finds their true home in him. And that's a really interesting thing to know. Because I just think it's unfair to leave it like this without telling you this is what happened later on. We don't know exactly what happened. We know something happened that changed and transformed their life forever. So may we all stick by Jesus. May we all learn to follow Jesus more closely. Um, in so doing, discover our true home and kind of lean into the fact that our family has grown. This is exciting. Our family has grown to include all of those people who place their trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you unbind us with this unimaginable forgiveness. God, you accept us and you welcome us home in your Son. Help us to stick by you and to follow you with courage. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.